As you're being seated, if you would please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We are going to do this morning something that I have not done my entire tenure as pastor was preaching through a chapter quickly. We're going to get through the entirety of chapter 21 today, Lord willing, as we examine this wonderful passage of Scripture. Admittedly, at first glance, it can be confusing, maybe a little scary, but I promise you this is a wonderful passage that's going to bring us a lot of comfort today. So let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 5. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you today. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distresses of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake. At all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. That great group of theologians, R.E.M., the band, once said, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Now, the reason that they had felt fine is because they looked at the world as ending and thus having no responsibility to it. The song goes on that they would have the chance to serve themselves because nothing really matters as the end of the world is coming. Now, this song was sung in 1987, and we have seen a lot of portents of the end of the world since then. We have had to endure wars and rumors of wars, tumults, earthquakes, famines, and now pestilences or pandemics, if you prefer the more modern term for them. There's two ways that we can deal with these distresses that are in the end of the world. The first is the REM way, saying, the end of the world is coming. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do whatever it is that you please. Serve yourself, because nothing really matters anyway. Or we can take the Christian approach. That says, let us serve Christ, whether we eat or drink. For though we die, we will be raised again. Yes, the REM approach can help us to feel fine, as the song says. But what Christ offers here is that we actually will be fine. We'll be more than fine. And that's the hope that we see out of this passage here today. Yes, the world is getting worse, just as expected. As I've titled this sermon, relax. It's just the end of the world. Today, we are not going to cover which view of the end times is correct, because that's not the point of this passage. We're not going to be able to establish a timeline for when Jesus is coming back because we can't. 
As one commentator put it, if you're trying to find out when Jesus is coming back by reading the news, it's like trying to tell what time it is by just watching the second hand. You'll see it go round and round the clock. We have no idea where it is. That's not the point of this passage, to give us a timeline. The point of this passage is to tell us how to live through this timeline. And that's much more helpful. Jesus gives us commands for no matter where we end up in the world, whether the end of the world is in our generation or whether it's not. This text still applies to us today. So our two points that we're going to be looking at, as we usually do. The first is that future troubles are predicted and controlled. Future troubles are predicted and controlled. And the second point is that future troubles announce the arrival of the king. Future troubles announce the arrival of the king. So let's take a look as we jump into this passage today for our first point, that future troubles are predicted and controlled. So Jesus, right now in this passage, beginning in verse 5, Jesus has been teaching inside the temple. Now the temple was a remarkable building even by today's standards, even more impressive by ancient standards. This was a very beautiful, wonderfully decorated building. It's quite solid. Some of the lighter stones that were used in the wall were four and five tons. Some of the heaviest of stones that they saw for the foundation were into the 400-ton range. This was a marvelously solid building. And these would have been engraved with carvings of gold. And one historian at the time describes a, a, one decoration that was on the wall was a golden cluster of grapes that was the size of a man. This was an enormous building. And I can imagine that they were incredibly proud of it. This was a wonder of the ancient world. And they likely looked at this as the reason why this thing was able to be built in the first place is because they had the wonderful blessing of God. This is his house, after all, where the glory of the Lord dwells. So not only is this untouchable as near as we can tell from the stones, but the fact that God lives here, this must be the safest place in all the world. But Jesus takes a different approach to it. Jesus hears them speaking about how admiring they are of the temple. And they say here in verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, that'll bring up some questions, isn't it? Because there are really two things that you would think about. It's like, one, logistically, how is that going to be possible to pull these stones that weigh as much as a few semi-trucks and pull them over? And spiritually, how is it that God would ever allow something like this to happen? So they ask the question, that would be the question that we would ask. When is this going to happen? So we can make sure we're not there when it does. Every time when we get the polygon warning from James Spann, our first question is, when is the storm coming? We want to preserve ourselves. Make sure we're outside the range of danger. But Jesus seems to be dodging their question. He doesn't give a when answer. He just says, be careful. What is Jesus doing? 
Anytime it looks like Jesus is dodging a question, that's the time we really need to pay attention. I mean, you should always be paying attention to the scriptures, but especially so when it looks like Jesus is not answering your question. Because Jesus is not dodging a question because he doesn't know the answer or doesn't want to tell you. He's dodging the question and answering the question you should have asked him. It's not a matter of when is this thing coming. The question is, is how do I live in these times? So Jesus responds. Here's the real danger. Not falling rocks. Verse 8. See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. The warning that Jesus gives is not of a collapsing building, but of deception. There are going to be those that are going to come and pretend to be Jesus. And are going to try to convince those that are around them that the end times have come and it's time to follow after them. As bad as things are going to get here in Jerusalem, as we'll get to in a moment, you can see how that deception might work. Like, all right, there's disaster all around us. This must be the end times. Here's a guy that says he's Jesus. We should follow after him. But he says no. This is not something that you should follow after. And instead, he goes on. Look here in verse 9. He says, And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now, you can imagine, as we get to verse 9, why is Jesus telling us not to be afraid of wars and tumults? Isn't that supposed to be the worst thing that can happen? Isn't this the thing we all fear as human beings? I mean, it gets worse in verse 10. It says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes in various places, famines and pandemics and terrors and great signs in heaven. And he's telling us, don't be afraid. Jesus would not have a good job at cable news. He's giving you all the worst things that could possibly happen, but is telling you not to panic. Why? It's because these are the things that are supposed to come before Christ arrives. As you all know, we've just had our second daughter, and one of the things that always amazed me about pregnancy is that every bit of suffering seems perfectly normal for pregnancy. Most of the doctor's time is spent telling you, yes, that horrible thing, that happens all the time. This is just part of being pregnant. Heartburn, can't sleep, pain, contractions. All these things are expected. And they get worse as you get closer to the arrival of the child. But no one is surprised when contractions come. We're not worried as if something strange is happening. Because this is the expected thing. That's why Paul uses that same metaphor in Romans when he looks at all the things that are happening out in the world and says that these are birth pangs. These are contractions. The world is ready to birth its Savior. It's ready to come. The Son of Man is ready to arrive. These are the expected things. That's why when we look out and see a world in turmoil, we can say, yeah, this is what happens. Because Jesus is coming soon. 
Now, suddenly, Jesus changes direction. And he gives very practical illustration for his disciples. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't apply to us as well. We here in America have been enormously blessed. Whether or not that blessing will last forever is only God knows. But this has been something that has applied to the church all through its history. It applies to us today, but it's especially to the disciples. Here, Jesus has just been talking about and has been hinting what's coming in these other passages, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming tumults of the end of the world. Then he says in verse 12, but before all this, before all this disaster comes, I'm going to rewind a little bit. We're going to take ourselves back to this year, A.D. 30. What's about to happen to these disciples? And he goes on and tells them that life is going to be very difficult. They're going to be dragged up before religious leaders and secular ones, synagogues and the courts, be brought before those that they once used to respect. Once being dragged up before the synagogue on charges was like being brought up in front of your entire community and being told, don't do any business with this person. Then cancel culture is new to our culture. This has been existing all the way back here. And this was a much different thing. Wouldn't be allowed to do business with other people. But he says, this is going to happen. You're also going to be dragged before foreign powers and be examined by them. That's really intimidating. That's rather scary. But Jesus tells them, notice how he frames this. This opposition becomes opportunity. That the point of being brought to these leaders is so that you have a literal captive audience that has to listen to the gospel. Why are you here today? Well, because I have committed the crime of believing in Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And that's exactly what we see all through the book of Acts of them being brought before these authorities. And also we see the illustration of this promise that wisdom is going to be given to them from Jesus. You see that in Acts chapter 4. And they're brought before the religious leaders. And it's Peter, the fisherman. And these religiously educated people are amazed at the wisdom that comes out of this fisherman. They even make that point. The wisdom of Christ brought to them in that moment. And he can tell them, don't even rehearse what you have to say. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is anti-studying or that we shouldn't know the contents of this word, because we see that in other passages, like in 1 Peter 3, it says to know the reason for the hope that lies within you. Or in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So he's not saying don't know the scriptures. But what he is saying is if you do find yourself in the position of being brought before authorities, you don't have to stress out as to what you're going to say. Just go in there and speak the truth. And Christ will meet you in that moment as he has for many, both the disciples and down through the ages of what we've seen even today. He's going to be with you in those trials and troubles, even when your family and friends and relatives are not. Even when your family betrays you, as it says, as this will happen, and he will be with you. But notice what he says here. Look in verse 18. Well, let me back up to 17. You will be hated by all, for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. What does he mean by that? 
Once again, Jesus is not making sense. This is the time where we, again, need to pay close attention to what Jesus is saying. How is it possible that Jesus can say, some of you are going to die, but not a hair of your head is going to be lost? That seems impossible. And there have been a couple of different ways that people have tried to explain this one. To say It's like, well, maybe he's meaning that there will be certain people that will go up to death and there will be certain people that will be preserved and he's talking to the people that get preserved and they'll be miraculously delivered. And I suppose that's one way of looking at it, but I think verse 19 explains what verse 18 is about. Verse 19, it says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. I think he's meaning eternity. What's waiting for us on the other side of our own death, on the other side of the end of the world, is something that is far more valuable than our own life. Such that we could say when we die and the life that we experience there will be so much grander and greater, we look back on our old lives on earth and say, I wasn't even alive then. Or the idea that the glories that are awaiting for us in heaven are going to be so great that even the loss of our lives will look at as less of a loss than a haircut. Even though we lose everything, it will be as if we've lost nothing. That's the promise that Jesus is saying here. And one that almost everybody of his disciples, the exception of John, is going to experience. They will all die in some way for their faith. But they won't have lost a hair. That loss will not be a loss. And I think that's the perspective that we need to take us through to the end of the world. There's always, if you don't have that hope, your soul will be very easily troubled. If you are looking to something here in this world or to someone here in this world for your hope and happiness, it will constantly be under threat. As we've now seen and been made more aware, we in America have lived relatively sheltered lives for what the rest of the, what the, rest of the world has to go through. We don't see a whole lot of armed bands of rebellers running through the town trying to control things like we, what we see over in Afghanistan. I think this virus for the first time has shown us and reminded us at least that we're vulnerable, that we can be scared of something and that what we have can be lost. The Bible is honest about that. What awaits us here is trouble. But having our hope in Christ doesn't make the trouble go away just puts it in perspective. Jesus doesn't promise deliverance from trials or persecution, but he does promise a different perspective on them. Puts it in a new light and says that this is an opportunity for you and that the loss that you have here is a temporary one, but that we will awake to a new world, a one in which we can say, I've not lost a thing. To borrow again, we can say it's the end of the world as we know it, but I am fine. Though this test has really put 
to, oh, it's a real test when we get to verse 20, the destruction of Jerusalem. So here in this last few verses that we've been reading, verses 10 through 19, these are all, or, or verses 12 through 19, is going to be talking about the things that the disciples are going to go through over the next 40-some years, what their lives will be like. Jesus is probably talking, this is right around the 30s. And he jumps in verse 20 to AD 70, when the fall of Jerusalem occurs. This is a, a fact of history. We've seen it before. But he is describing it 40 years before it happens. Look what he says. And when we're reading this, as commentaries have pointed out, this is meant to be a preview for what judgment on the rest of the world looks like. And keep in mind, this is judgment on the city of God, where the temple was. Any one of us would have thought this is the untouchable city. Listen to how it is not spared from judgment and what this would mean for the rest of the world. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. He goes on to warn those that are inside the city should get out. Now, for those of us that don't live in this kind of environment, we're, we're, not, we're not attuned to what this, what this means. When you were invaded by an army, there would be people that would be living within the city that was walled or those that would live outside the city and would farm. When there were invading armies come, everyone would run into the city and try to shut the gate because that's how you would stay safe. You know, these big thick walls surrounding you. But he says, when you see the armies coming, don't bother going into the city. If you're in there, get out. And if you're out there, stay out because this place is going to collapse. It would be just as shocking as if Span had told you, don't go into the basement. Instead, go meet the tornado. Walk outside. It's very contradictory information because this is how devastating this fall is going to be. In verse 22, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written. This was something that has been predicted to come, that Jerusalem would fall in vengeance for those not coming to Jesus. You can see no one gets spared this fate. Here, Jesus' tone is as alas for women who are pregnant, who are nursing. This is going to be very difficult. No one's going to be spared this. In fact, a Jewish historian who was writing at the time in which this place did fall, describing the horrors of what occurred, of many, many people dying, and those that survived, survived because they had turned to cannibalism to survive the siege. This is a horrifying picture of what the judgment of God looks like. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Total destruction. But yet for Jerusalem, look, it says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This does hint that there is going to be a renewing of Jerusalem, perhaps what we saw in Isaiah 62 in our Old Testament reading this morning. There is going to be a renewal of Jerusalem. 
But we move on from Jerusalem, A.D. 70. And now we're zooming out to a time, exactly when, who knows. But in verse 25, describing what it's going to be like for the rest of the world. And that's when we move into our second point, which is that future troubles announce the arrival of the king. Here, Jesus is now getting to the end of the world as we know it. So what's happened, what's come before in this passage, these are things that from our perspective, standing here in 2022, everything that we have looked at this point has already happened. The disciples have been persecuted. They've been brought before synagogues. They've been brought before kings. We see all of that in the book of Acts. Jerusalem was laid siege. It was brought down. The walls were pulled down from from the temple. And now we get here to verse 25. We haven't experienced this yet. Not in its fullness anyway. And he says in verse 25, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what's coming on in the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus doesn't go on to describe in tremendous detail what all these things mean. And perhaps it's better that he doesn't. If those of us who, those who are alive at those times are fainting with fear of what's coming. I can't imagine what that might be. But no matter what it is, whether if it's powers of the heavens be shaken, whether the moon cracks in half and falls into the oceans and causes tsunamis, whatever it means, look what he says. Verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When everything seems like it's coming to an end, that's when the beginning starts. When Christ returns, he says, and your redemption is drawing near. Does, now you say, wait a minute, I, I thought Jesus already purchased our redemption. He did that on the cross. Yes, he did. He has delivered us from the penalty of sin. But now when he comes back, he's going to deliver us from the presence of sin as well. So even though our sins have been forgiven, we're still in this world of sin and pain. But when Christ comes back, all of what he has been promising is going to be revealed in its fullness in restoring of this world. And he says that we can be sure of this. He goes on 29 through 33 and tells a parable. We all know when we look out into our yards at this point, all of our trees are bare and leafless. But as soon as we start seeing those leaves begin to pop out, we don't need a calendar to tell us that summer is on its way. Because this happens every year. It's very dependable. And Jesus says, when all of these things that show up outside, wars, rumors of wars, tumults, pestilences, famines, earthquakes, all of these things are budding leaves telling us that Christ is on his way. I don't know if you all were following, had a volcano explode in the Pacific Ocean the other day, sending out shock waves and hitting the California beaches. Seeing all these news of spiking cases and all these wars that we're hearing about going on over, perhaps between Russia and the Ukraine. All of these things promised. 
expected. Telling us that there is someone who is coming. And it's a sure thing. Look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Christ's prophecies are more solid than the ground in which you stand. These things will occur. So what do we do? What do we do in the meantime? Well, it says, verse 34, but watch yourselves. Watch yourselves for what? Watch ourselves for falling meteors, big waves, bullets? No. It says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. That that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's telling us don't become complacent. Don't think, well, Jesus hasn't come yet, so he's probably not, so let's sow some wild oats. Or Jesus hasn't come for some time, so I guess I've just gotta, I'm just going to bury myself in my work. Jesus warns us against those things. He warns us that there is the possibility of us becoming distracted and moving away. That's the real danger. It's not to say that if you have truly repented and put your faith in Christ that you can fall away. We're not saying that. But what we can say is that those that are looking at Christ and say, it's like, well, this is, this is interesting, but there's more than I can have over here in the world. Don't fall prey to that. Because it's coming suddenly. I think that's why if we can back up briefly, I think this illuminates what he means in verse 32. Because this is a little confusing. Because he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. There's been some argument as to what this means. And I I don't think there is enough evidence to, to pound the table on any one particular interpretation. But I think that what he is saying here is of this generation means the generation in which this occurs. When it occurs, it's going to be fast. It's going to be sudden. That's why he tells us to be watchful. Because it's not like we get two, three generations to watch this play out. When this thing starts, it's going to be fast. So be ready. Make your decision to follow after Christ today. Because we don't know when this thing's coming. Traps don't give you a warning right before they slam shut. Neither will this day. That's why it says on verse 36, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does he mean by that? What's the goal? It's to be found faithful before Jesus. Is that from gritting our teeth and trying really hard? No. It's by coming to Christ. Throwing ourselves at his mercy. Being changed by him. And only if we have done that in our lives, if we have come to Christ for transformation, will we have any hope of looking and making it through this time. And with that, Luke wraps up the teaching that Jesus gave in the temple. It says that he taught during the day and at night he was out on the mountains.
And as we'll see, the passage that's to come for the remaining two chapters, uh, verse, or chapters 22 through 24, will be the last week of Christ's life as we go through Jesus' sacrifice to make the rest of this possible. So, what is our takeaway from all of this? It's been a big text. It's been a lot we've had to look at. The takeaway from this text is that these unprecedented times in which we live in are fully expected. And they signal the soon arriving of the greatest hope in the world, the return of Christ. So what do we do? What's the so what? Times are going to be tough, but Jesus is coming back. All right, what do I do with it? Here we go. Verse one, or not verse one, point one. You don't have to panic. If the world ends, you still have Jesus. The most important thing in the world. So when disaster inevitably strikes, and it will, whether that's on a national level or on a personal level, there is going to be disaster coming. Knowing that your eternity is taken care of and putting your hope in what lies beyond in that way will help you endure what you have here and will, in fact, make you more useful in disaster, national or otherwise. Knowing that our eternity is taken care of helps us help other people in the present. When there's a big earthquake, we can go and we can help out physically. Go out and help clean up somebody's house because your eternal home is taken care of. So you can expend the energy to worry about somebody else. You don't have to worry about you anymore. Helping them physically and spiritually in these things. In fact, we at the, at the PCA have a, have a disaster fund that we can contribute to to help people do exactly that. When tornadoes or earthquakes strike, we can say, yeah, we knew this was coming, so here we go. We're here to help you. This is not to help us to be glib or to look at other people and say, well, I know you just lost your house, but hey, this is not what we're called to do. We know disaster is coming. We can mourn with those who mourn, but we don't have to mourn like those that have no hope at all. We can meet people that have lost everything, comfort them in that time, restore what we can of what they've lost, and then remind them of who can save their soul. So that's the first thing. You don't have to panic when the end of the world comes, when the cases spike. And the second thing that we can take away from this passage is to be attached to Jesus. Looking and not being disturbed by hardship is not stoicism. We don't accomplish this by saying stiff upper lip, keep calm, carry on. No. Stay close to Jesus. That's the only way you don't panic. You have to have something to hold on to. And your own emotional stability is not that. It's Christ. That's the only way to panic, to not panic at the end of your life or at the end of the world. Is it has to be Christ alone. And when troubles come, and you look at something and fear to lose that thing, that's... That fear helps point out what it is that you might be clinging too hard to. Instead points us, here's an area that you need to give to Jesus. Whether it's a bank account, whether it's a family, whether it's a retirement plan, a house, whatever it is. 
is to say, yes, these things are gifts from God, but the greatest gift that we have is Christ. Hold on to that. Hold on to that salvation that he has given to you. And then, and only then, will you be able to say, it's the end of the world. But Christ holds me. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this incredible promise that only you can grant to us. Money is not going to go beyond the end of the world. Our houses are not going to go beyond the end of the world. Nothing is going to go beyond the end of the world except you. So I pray that everyone who is here today or watching online or listening to my voice in some way would know how to be attached to you. I pray that they would would do that by putting their trust in you, by repenting, turning from their sins so that they can embrace you, letting go of everything we have here and cling to our only treasure, which is you. I pray that we would see you as the precious gift that you are and our only hope for this broken and dying world. I pray that we would go and share this news with those that are around us, that we would not be satisfied to just relate the latest development in some horrifying story, but that we would then declare to them what is the end, that it will not always be this way, that there is hope that is coming that outshines the darkest of nights. I ask that you would inflame our hearts with this hope, and that we would live in whatever it is that 2022 will bring to us, that we, even if it brings to us the end of the world, that we would endure it with confidence, and dare we even say joy, as we await your return. I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.